Welcome to 8020 with Pareto Health. I'm Andrew Cavanaugh. And I'm Andrew Clayton. Well, Andrew, it's good to see you on another episode of 8020. This episode, we're going to spend some time talking about care navigation, care coordination. You know, you and I have spent time talking about it sort of offline, but certainly on some of the prior episodes, how important that is. I'm thrilled to have Justin Holland and uh, Doug Moore Schindler from HealthJoy joining us today. They've got uh, some interesting views, uh, and obviously a big partner of ours at Pareto, so uh, happy to have those guys with us. Let's talk care navigation just for a second. When you think about the healthcare system today, it's incredibly complicated, and companies like Pareto can do all these things. But if we can't touch the employee, if you can't touch the member's um, family, a lot of things aren't as effective. So just curious, your, your, your quick view of the landscape um, on care coordination, care navigation today, Clayton. I think you hit the nail on the head, but it starts with even at home, you know, when my wife, my parents, somebody says, Hey, how do I do this? How do I navigate the healthcare system? Right. And we're a family that's supposed to be living in, in the healthcare space that it's everywhere. And I'm interested in, in Doug and Justin's uh, opinion on uh, where medical literacy is today, but we have such wonderful resources available to people. And yet we don't know effectively on a broad enough basis, how to get them to those resources, both in terms of best quality of care, but also appropriate levels of care, not overcare uh, or, or not uh, make sure we don't have misdiagnosis. Um, but we see it absolutely every day. And something that we've stressed before is the importance of breaking down medical barriers in the employer-employee relationship um, that historically and the industry in reality has set employer and employee up at opposite ends of the relationship, creating a whole bunch of friction. And the more you can do from a navigation, the more you can do from an expertise standpoint, the better odds that those two entities, employer-employee, are working cohesively together, adding and building culture. Andrews, appreciate you all having us uh, here today. Just do a quick intro. Justin Holland, CEO and co-founder of, of HealthJoy, started the business ten years ago. It's my third tech company, um, and uh, other companies were not in healthcare. They were um, in uh, loyalty, some ad tech software, and you know, came in with a lot of hubris, thinking, "Hey, we're going to go come fix Obamacare, and hey, this is going to be really simple." There's no tech people in this uh, in this industry, and we're going to come in here and just throw some code around. It's going to fix everything. Uh, realize how how wrong we were. Uh, keep reminding how wrong we are that it's not as simple as just uh, technology that there is a there's a massive ecosystem that we've had to, to, to grapple and um, and do our best with teams about you know 450 people and we're you know we're still focused on every day how we get people to affordable high, high quality care Doug hey guys Doug Moore Schindler I'm the president and co-founder of the company don't come from a healthcare background you know start out in, in finance and strategy Justin and I have now worked on two tech companies together. I think coming into it, uh, it was clear that there was a consumer experience problem, lack of transparency, huge amount of fragmentation. Andrew, you mentioned something about medical or healthcare literacy. That was one of the biggest problems that we saw. People just don't know the specifics of their plan, whether it's their network or whether it's their financial responsibility. And what we're seeing is that things are actually getting more challenging more complex um, over the course of time. And I would also argue that true literacy amongst the population, while there's more and more onus on the employee to really understand the healthcare system, we haven't seen a whole lot of improvement over 10 years. And, And ultimately, that's where we believe there should be solutions in place to really hold the member's hand 
to get them probably a little bit more literate, but also just give them the easy answer. Here's what you need to do um, in order to make the right decision. Yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to like how many people just still self-diagnose on Google, right? WebMD is like how many people just start their journey off of WebMD and, you know, find out you have some rare rare form of cancer, right, by the end of that. And, uh, you know, what good does that really do, unfortunately? There's only so many different options. You're never going to self-diagnose effectively. You have to go see a provider. You're going to have to engage with the system. And the problem is access has been really bad. And then on top of that, you talk about those barriers between employer and employee. Yeah, the employee doesn't trust the carriers, right? Uh, we know their NPS, where their NPS score is. They're not trusting the decisions that are being made for them. So then they're kind of left their own devices out in the system, which, which makes it really, really challenging. Let's start sort of the top of the funnel. And we'd love to start with the semantics. I said care navigation. We'd love to hear how you guys define the space. Then I want to jump down to the words you just said, Justin, which is access and talk about that and particularly how that has changed relative to COVID and, um, and virtual care becoming more accepted and prominent. And then sort of dive down into how you take uh, the employee and change behavior or give them um, the ability to get to where they need to go in this complicated system. I do think care navigation is is definitely the prevalent term today in the industry. Um, really thinking about for all the healthcare decisions that a member needs to, to make or an employee needs to make throughout their journey, um, having a centralized organization or digital solution that they can go to uh, in order to provide the information necessary to make those decisions in a transparent way, ultimately resulting in the best possible pricing and the highest possible quality of care. There's a lot to unpack within that because in order to really understand what is the best possible pricing, what's going to give you the highest quality of care, I didn't mention convenience, but that probably also fits into it and it probably goes into the access discussion. It really requires you to understand and to map out as the care navigator, what are the options? You know, what are the potential destinations that we could ultimately, you know, send an employee to? And that's where you have to start bringing in what does the network look like? What are all the other plans and programs that a given employer has provided to the employee population and really trying to understand given a specific care need, how do you ultimately push them or steer them elegantly in the right direction so that they make the best choice? We use the analogy internally of Google Maps, right? Like 10 years ago, you'd have Ray McNally in your back seat and you'd be going cross country and you'd like look at the roads, you'd like map out which way you want to go. And then you'd end up like, oh crap, this road doesn't even exist anymore because I went off the highway. That's a bad experience. But you, you think about it now, you use Google Maps and you just click, you don't even know where you're going half the time, right? You just dial in the destination and you just follow the directions uh, that it goes. And there's a lot of enriching experiences during that time. You also have a couple choices. Hey, do I want tolls? Do I not want tolls? Things I want to avoid, I can add stops along the way. I can enrich my experience along the way. And I think clearly the job that Google Maps is doing is how do I get you from point A to point B with as little hassle and as fast as possible? And the difference is, is that everyone has the same roads, in that world. Whereas in our world, it's personalized. Everyone has a different set of benefits. The benefits is somewhat of a map, right? That it's a little bit different for everybody. And then what you're trying to optimize might be different based upon what you're looking for. Our job is to navigate someone through this to a 
the most affordable, high quality option. And I guess what you know, carry navigation ultimately should be trying to do is try and get the highest value, which is quality cost, in both in those in those perspectives. Regards to access, Andrew, which I think was the the second part of your question. Historically, it's interesting because when we when we started the company in in 2013, we kind of looked at the market, looked at really what was the current state of care navigation at that point, which was primarily, I'll say, a concierge call center type of model. There really wasn't a digital solution. It wasn't highly personalized. But we also looked at what was going on in the virtual care space. And at that point, telemedicine was was relatively newish, um, was gaining some traction. I personally remember, you know, telling friends and family like the idea of actually going to see an in-person provider for sneezes and sniffles, like you're not going to do it anymore. You're going to talk to somebody either over the phone or, or via video. And, you know, of course they're like, that's crazy. How can you imagine that? Obviously that has changed. If there's one, I would say positive that came out of COVID, despite the many negatives, it is just the, the understanding that virtual care can be a very high quality, cost-effective, easily accessible way to address so many different needs in terms of healthcare. Um, And it really just gained a a lot of acceptance and and frankly got a lot of awareness, which was one of the biggest challenges. And we've seen that even post-COVID, that's also, I, I would say, driving uh, additional investment and acceptance in virtual care beyond just what we'd call, you know, urgent care or general medical. It extends into mental health, extends into chronic care, um, maternity care, you name it. Um, ultimately, what we envision is that virtual care will become a much, much larger piece of the pie over the next coming years in terms of medical spend. When you think about the the increasing prevalence of virtual care. Just curious, how much of that is providing people access that didn't have it before? And how much of that is a shift from physical to virtual? I think you have to define what access means, right? Like, yes, is getting a primary care provider in three months, is that is that access? You know, I think mental health is easier to say like, yeah, they just could, literally could not get a provider within 50 miles, right? I think the, I can't remember what the stat was, but there was these huge uh, primary care shortages, you know, county by county is like half the country is, is in what do they call like a drought or something, you know, something similar to that. Or was saying that, you know, they did, yeah, there was providers, but they were accepting patients or they weren't in their, in the networks they had. You would assume that virtual health will ideally allow some of that excess capacity that was, I wouldn't say improperly using it. Let's realize that there's a lower acuity option here that probably encompasses a majority of these cases that are going in into the space right now. Clearly the rural areas, they're super challenged. I can't remember the data on the mental health piece, but it was way worse than primary care as far as like what access was. And of course, then you load in a, what, I don't know, has the amount of, of demand on mental health for the last three years. We were at kind of capacity three years ago now, let alone the problem with, um, you know, this, the second pandemic of, of mental health issues now in our plaguing across the country. So Yes, I would say because the lack of access, most of it now is just be the fact that, hey, they just weren't able to even go access what they had in many uh, locale in the United States. Let's talk about the supply and demand for primary care. Let's assume that's sort of static coming out of COVID, the demand for mental health up greatly. So the overall, let's just say demand is up. 
And then you have the capacity side. So one of the things that virtual is able to do is to reallocate existing capacity um, because it does, you're not worried about who is within 10 miles of me. Um, it could be who's in the country. Um, and so that's an efficiency, but that hasn't actually increased the um, the overall supply of care. Um, a negative is that some people have opted to get out of being providers given the state of health care. But then there's also the flip side where I think that there are people that are willing to be, you know, one day a week uh, mental health provider where they weren't before because they had to do it physically. Now they can do it virtual. So there's also sort of an increase in capacity coming from that. And so just, again, those are sort of my off-the-cuff observations. Just curious if you guys see those and see something else that I'm not um, accounting for in that. I mean, I think you have to think of also efficient use of time of those providers, right? Like, you know, a, a, you know, being able to do a virtual visit, we know the average about wait, eight minutes, seven, eight minutes in an urgent care, general, general medical uh, sense. Um, you know, they're able to see just a massive amount of more patients than than a typical provider in a uh, in a facility setting would be. And also the fact that we all know the primary care has been consumed by many of the systems. But I think it's also important to note you can more efficiently see more patients in a virtual setting, but that seven to eight minutes that you're talking about, Justin, at the end of the day, that's not going away, right? At some point, there is a, a minimum where there's time spent with a provider and a patient, and that technology is not going to change that. No, uh, but, but they have made it so that, you know, nurse practitioners, right, they've, they've expanded the scope of care for uh, phys- physicians' assistants and things like that to be able to kind of deal with some of that load. doesn't help when, you know, we know that the number of, of Clearly, the number of medical, uh, sorry, the doctors is not increasing as the demand is. But also, you think about the, does does greater access long-term um, ideally decrease kind of the, the higher acuity, bigger problems downstream, or it thins it out a little bit more? So you actually are getting capacity just later later on because you're able to address more, you know, earlier. You know, I think that probably the jury's out on that from a from a timing perspective. You know, you would make that assumption that if with greater access that you're able to make make an impact uh, with these lower acuity visits. I always find the process you go through of building a company like yours really interesting. So would you walk us through early days? Because part of what you needed to do was not quite Trojan horse, but find your way into relationships with behemoths in order to get the data, in order to get access, in order to share that with people from a navigation standpoint. So uh, what, what was that process like? Our first entry in was focused on ACA. So we were literally sold on top of Obamacare plans. We saw a, a big need. 100 million people are going to be on ACA plans by 2025. We're like, oh my God, have you been on one of those? It's really challenging. You know, $6,500 deductible. Most of those people who, if they hit that deductible, they would be declaring bankruptcy. It was a hard premise and ultimately an important step of saying, hey, we need people to have insurance in the country if that's how the system is built. Um, the issue is it was massively unaffordable for a lot of individuals and challenging to use. So you're taking a population that's never been insured before, giving them insurance in a very, very narrow network and narrow set of benefits. It was kind of like a you know, conflagration of, of challenges there. And so we, we entered and focused on that. And you know we partnered with, a, with an exchange initially and, and sold on top of it. But that DNA is important because we ultimately had to have people who were willing to pay $20 a month for a digital health product. And I think that that ultimately is just a lot different than the typical DNA in many you know health companies. Um, and so clearly our thesis was incorrect 
there was not 100 million people. Politics changed a lot in 2016, made that even more challenging from a perspective of, do we really want to be um, you know, attached in the ACA world when clearly the other side of the insurance was probably more supportive? And so then we ended up focusing on the group space. You know, We started off going around all these NAHU meetings, a lot of the, the brokers across the country, uh, local meetings, et cetera. And you know, we started getting these 80, 80 life groups, 100 life groups. And you're like, oh my God, there's 80 people with the same plan. Because in our world, every single person had a different plan. Every single person had a different cost structure. So everything had to be personalized and architected down to an individual because we never saw the same plan. It was like 25,000 plans across 50,000 members by the end of it. And it was like, oh, wow, we can service it the same way for 80 people. That's a lot better than doing it in every single individual. And then we were really fortunate to understand that the broker dynamic and how benefit consultants really end up being the customer for the most part um, in, in this, say, the small to to mid-market, that vital function of benefits is really outsourced to them. And typical HR team, a 200, 300-life company, is understaffed and doesn't have the time and data to really dig into the details. So they're really depending upon the brokers to do that. So then we went to the brokers and understood the brokers' issues and challenges and tried to make sure that we understood that. And then you know now we're you know been working with the TPAs recently and now obviously as we've you know grown closer with Pareto on the captive insurance piece, kind of understanding more of the ecosystem. I'd say it's been a kind of a step function that moving up where a lot of companies, because it's really challenging to sell in the mid-market and, and the small and medium business, they have to go onto the jumbos. They have to focus way further up market, which you know, going to work with a 50,000 employee company, you have a lot of leverage to work with everyone because everyone has to work with you in the, in their ecosystems versus in the mid-market and the, and, and, the, and the underdogs. They don't have the leverage. It's really nice is, is what a big value add of what Pareto does, right, is gives the underdogs a bigger voice across the ecosystem, uh, which I think is really, really important. But it's been, a, I would say, a step function process of failure <laughs> uh, to, to, to get where we are. I, th- I think what's interesting is neither of us came from the healthcare insurance space. It was all all new. Our initial thesis that everyone was ignoring the consumer and ultimately that we needed to be able to empower them to make better healthcare decisions, ultimately to impact cost. I mean, we believe that from day one. Obviously, you know, we were focused on the individual market, moved into B2B for uh, reasons that Justin mentioned, but I would also say this industry has some unique attributes when it comes to distribution. Uh, and distribution, of course, is so important in any industry, but really trying to figure out how distribution works in healthcare, in the insurance space, and aligning with the brokers and understanding, I'd say, just the various stakeholders at play. Uh, their interest, what's important to them, how we can provide as much value as possible to them was essential, not to mention really understanding the pain points that our customer has. And when we say our customer, we really think about HR and the benefits leader. What are they going through every single day? They've got a really, really tough job trying to bring together these strategies, you know, together with their broker consultant, how do we better understand their daily pain points and how can we ultimately align with them as best as possible? That takes a while. And there's obviously different flavors and different personas, and there's so many different 
company structures, whether you're multi-location or single location, just as one example, that's really where we've we've certainly one of the areas we've we've obsessed over, <laughs> and we'll continue to obsess over uh, looking forward. Health Joy, what are the big bang ROI for you guys? You know, in terms of MSK virtual, your top three within our core platform, ultimately driving members to the most cost-effective procedures, which, you know, that's going to depend on the facility primarily. That's where most of the cost comes in. Just as an easy example, getting them to go from inpatient to an ambulatory surgical center. That is going to, in pretty much every single case, have a significant impact on cost. In theory, we have people listening to this that might not know some of these numbers. Um, you know, my mom, Clayton's mom, um, not everyone's from the industry. Just quantify that for the audience, if you would. What's the delta in cost and facilities between like a knee surgery between inpatient yeah. and ambulatory surgery? Yeah. So, so typically what we see, and again, these are averages, depends on the market, depends on the facility, but I'd say you're looking at going inpatient, $40,000, dollars all day long. You go to an ambulatory surgical center. You're looking at the eighteen to twenty-five thousand dollar, so it's up to fifty percent savings just based on the facility itself. The other interesting thing that most people don't realize is that the same providers who are working at at the hospital they may have two days in the OR at the hospital, and then they have two days at the ambulatory surgical center. So you still are getting the same provider. Same level of care based on all quality indicators that we see, and yet the pricing is tremendously different. And the provider in both cases makes the same exact amount of money, for the most part, and all that variability is in the in the facility. And you, and you we do that same steerage for imaging, where you know if you go to a local research hospital, it could cost three to four thousand dollars for for a routine MRI, versus you know five hundred to seven hundred dollars at an imaging clinic that treats it like a hotel. And what's good about when they treat it like a hotel, they do it every day, all day long. They're really, really good at it. And it's just, that's where they've specialized. And so there's a lot of different layers of steerage. I mean, we, we focus on trying to steer people to primary care outside of hospital systems, because we know if they're in the hospital system, most likely they're going to get referred downstairs to the pharmacy that charges you $40 for a pill of Motrin, $500 for the x-ray to the MRI down to the specialist. That's going to be incredibly expensive, which that experience is really important for you know, specific episodes of really, really challenging care issues. But on just the, you know, a brick and mortar annual physical and you're trying to just get through the system, there's going to be a lot of downstream costs that you can't account for, which is why we look at virtual care also as part of that steerage of how do we get people to use, you know, lower acuity, lower cost options earlier than later. And that's, you know, a primary component of kind of steerage piece. Um, a big piece is going to be prescription review, uh, helping, um, you know, individuals understand that a prescription, say at one pharmacy and another is going to be a big diff price difference. There's also a lot of different programs that you can use in order to reduce that cost, um, whether that's assistance programs, coupons, et cetera, to, you know, hey, we're, we can recommend therapeutic alternatives um, that, that you may not have known that could be also um, much cheaper or infusion therapy that's done at freestanding facilities. We're getting chemotherapy, for instance, in a hospital for a freestanding facility is tens of thousands of dollars of difference, you know, for the year. And it's a much better experience outside of the hospital. There's a lot of these different types of optimizations that we do. We kind of bundle into that one primary concept of steerage. 
so maybe to summarize the three areas, number one, moving specifically on the procedures, inpatient to call it outpatient ASC. Number two, moving from brick and mortar to virtual care, which there's a few examples there. Uh, one easy one is emergency department uh, visits, which people still go to the emergency department because they have a science infection. May sound crazy, um, but it happens. And then on the prescription side and, and really finding you know therapeutic alternatives when possible. And the MSK, right? Physical therapy, but you don't have to go into a facility for physical therapy where we know adherence is even hard because people don't want to get in their car and go drive to do physical therapy. So how do you make it really simple and bite-sized to do it at home? We really typically think about everything we do as, well, number one, how we connect people to care. That's our North Star metric as a business is connections. And then ultimately we're trying to drive, making sure that it's hitting our mission, which is cost and quality. And in that vein, most of the things we're, we're focused on, what is the framing that we have to make sure that we're driving doors that higher value care for, for the individual? Thinking of utilization, if there's one thing that you look at and say, if we could just get people to do X, um, one or two things where if we can move the needle a little bit more, or why won't people just follow through on this uh, option that's available to them? Stick with ROI. What, what are the biggest ones, the lowest, lowest hanging fruit? Well, I think it's really hard to change. Once someone's had a specialist and has a diagnosis for a procedure, it's, it's really late in the game right? Like we're going to do everything we can to make that change, right? If I say the one thing they could do um, if they have virtual primary care is make sure they're using virtual primary care and then we at least get the follow-up um, referral to the specialist. So we can um, ideally refer them to the specialist that will make the diagnosis in a setting where we have high confidence that's going to be in a, uh, in a low-cost facility. Um, that's going to be the best place, right? Further upstream, well, I wish HR would ask emails or phone numbers for all employees. Like it still blows my mind. Like they don't have contact information um, in many cases for, for certain types of workers. We need to have ways of connecting with the individuals. As, as much as I'd like to think that, you know, posters and QR codes are going to get us there, they're not, right? We really need to have um, access into the individual and getting that information. There's low-hanging fruit everywhere, which, you know, you look at the amount of waste in, in the system and it's it's massive. Our thought is, how do we get as many members to come to us before they make a decision? Or we need to be proactively reaching out to them and engaging them before they make a decision. Um, and whether it's, you know, the examples that, that Justin gave or, you know, the really easy ones are going into a research hospital to get an MRI. I mean, you're going to pay I don't know, $2,000, let's say on average. And if you go to a freestanding facility, you're probably going to pay 30% of that. That is one microcosm for, I would say, the entire healthcare system. Basically, there's $100 bills on the ground everywhere. And it's our job to make sure that people have an easy way to scoop those up with the net. Uh, but I think it kind of goes back to an initial point you made about like, there's the barriers between the employer and the employee, right? Where there's a trust issue inherent. And if you think about it, the typical way that still people go pick their provider is friends and family. That's it. How does, you know, the consumerism and things like that of the individual is really, really important because people don't shop in the same way because you can't, 
right? The the, the data the data is not really um, in in uh, in a format for for a for a person to be consumer, which is you know part of the one I'd say the overarching theme of what we're trying to accomplish is try how do we help empower the consumer so they think they're going to come to us first to start that process, right? They start on Google, then they ask some friends, and then they end up going to some provider that was referred to them. Um, and I don't think we do that with for anything else. Any other purchase, right? Maybe for golf clubs, <laughs> right? If you ask your friend which uh, which ones he likes and you want to play with them, but you know it's it's hard. Um, and I think that these high consideration type of actions, how do we help empower the the individual with enough of the information as a care navigator, any care navigator, right? I would say the one thing, go to the care navigator first. That's what I, that one thing I would tell everybody, regardless if it's HealthJoy or any of the other entities out there that are doing you know similar work is that they're going to have a better answer at the beginning than they're probably going to your friend or family that had one individual experience. Yep. So you mentioned uh, MRI and MRI is obviously an easy one because the, the quality is not going to change. Um, there are quality data sources out there today. There are health system provided sources. I would say, and I would guess that we're not at the point where we can say with great accuracy that the quality data is there in order for us to be able to judge. How far away, in your opinion, are we and, and what needs to happen before we can get to true quality analysis? Yeah, a great question and something that is a constant topic with our partners, brokers, consultants, and, and employers. You know, you look at where is the mass of data that we have today? It's it's from CMS. Uh, from what what we know, it's it's kind of the the best national database of quality. Um, that said, you you really do a deep dive on it with anyone who truly understands the, the quality measures. And there's not a whole lot of agreement on how impactful that data always is. And as, as you mentioned, Andrew, there's... Um, you know, also specific data sources out there from the health systems, they aren't as complete as CMS. I think one of our challenges has been we have a, a national footprint of members today. Um, and so we really look for solutions that, that are going to solve kind of the, the problem for everybody. Um, we do see, however, and we've actually been doing a, a lot of investigation, that there are new entrants emerging basically trying to take the CMS data, data from the hospital systems and merge them together, ultimately to create almost a quilt, if you will, or an overlay of quality data, which we think is really intriguing. I don't know how long that's going to take to get to a point where it is the accepted version of the truth, but it's at least exciting that someone's truly working on the problem. I think what's also really interesting is when it comes to quality I would say you've got a few different measures in terms of, you know, readmission rates. Let's let's use that as an example or complication rates with a given provider or facility. But then there's also this other really important component. And that is if I'm the patient, what's the bedside manner of that provider? And that's typically really important and really comes into play in terms of the overall satisfaction of patient-provider relationship. And today, what's interesting is, and we know this from when we make provider recommendations based on our best understanding of quality, 
the first thing you do when you look up a provider as a typical patient member of HealthJoy, I imagine, is you go on Google and you know you look at health grades, you look at vitals, and if it's primary care, how how pleasant was the staff? How much time did the provider spend with me? How clean was the office? How quickly was I seen? And so it's it, one of the things that we've really tried to get a better understanding of what's important to the patient beyond just what I would say CMS is tracking or the hospitals are tracking in terms of readmission rates, because we find that it it does come into the overall patient experience. And that's also something that we should be capturing and sharing when it comes to, you know, transparency. Health joy in three years. Um, what's it look like? What are your big audacious goals? Um, what are the key things that you're working on? I, I think an important part of care navigation is we have to make sure that there's confidence that that trend, that it's verifiable, that all the data, that trend is reduced against not having care navigation in there. And I think that that should be a expectation that all care navigation is held accountable to uh, once the data is there and you're able to work against that. Let's say that's a premise that that has to happen um, and has to be easier in order to do that, those, those calculations as time goes by. The challenge we have is A lot of things are about obviation, about not doing things versus reducing things. And so it's like when we look at, say, an example of working with our procedure partners, well, it's easy for everyone to understand, hey, if I'm going to pay it 120% of Medicare, we're definitely going to save money against our commercial plan, right? No doubt about that. When we think about like how avoidance of care and how we characterize that and do a better job of of showing that end-to-end is something that's, that's really, really important for us. But I think in order to enable all of these things is really how do we have really great answers across the entire, not just, I'd say the continuum of care, but all the different possibilities of, if you think about the, the giant pie chart of, of cost of healthcare expenditure, uh, making sure that there is, you know, sound strategies and with multiple different partners, we are agnostic to a level and we want to make sure that there is a lot of different options and they're based upon what consultants uh, believe is, is most important. And the reality is healthcare is really local and certain vendors are better than others in certain places. So I say holistic ecosystem um, is kind of like, I would say the foundation, the keystone of that. And then ultimately there's a lot of insights about that ecosystem. I think are really important for how plans should be designed. Um, how do we help encourage the proper behavior with consumers? Ultimately, how do we get the consumers to understand that their decisions influence their premium? There is this somehow this massive cloud in between those two concepts that ideally we can help uh, break down over time. So I'd say that the goal is, you know, how do we get there? And, you know, when we think about our big audacious goal, it's, a, it's 1 billion connections of connecting people to care by, by 2027. I think where we're also doing a lot of work is in order to engage with a member. And, you know, I'd say this is no different than, you know, what we see from companies like or, or any marketing company, the more that you know about your member or your user, the better, more complete profile you have, you have so many more opportunities to personalize the engagement, to ultimately impact behavior. And that's where we're doing a ton of work is to really build out the most comprehensive member profile that we possibly can so that we can get the engagement with the members. It can be more and more proactive. Today, the reality is our system is, it's too reactive. In a lot of cases, it happens after the fact. How do we get in front of 
more decisions. And in order to do that, we really have to understand what the member's going through. And ultimately, once we do that, engage with them, and as Justin said, then be able to seamlessly connect them to our ecosystem, to the partnerships that that ultimately we've developed. Um, and that's ultimately what's going to really drive the the behavior change. It's a lot like, you know, Instagram. If you think about Instagram six, seven years ago, you probably never bought anything from Instagram. And now the Instagrams are they're so targeted, they're so well done because they're so applicable to well, to a lot of things that happen outside of Instagram too, which is a little like uh, big brotherish, but uh, it works. They're really targeted. And as that ecosystem expands, then there's a lot better targeting that we can do. And it's similar to, to an ad engine. How do we help drive people to those to those actions? We see that as a big unlock and that's something we're working on. We'll have our first kind of V1 of that in actually in January. We appreciate you guys taking the time today. I like to tell anyone who will listen to me that I love what I do. And the reason that I love what I do is because of whom we're doing it for, which are small and, business, small and mid-sized um, businesses and their employees, and then who we do it with. And certainly the who we do it with includes the Pareto team, but it also includes people like HealthJoy. Clayton has a phrase that I really like, which is the right side of the fight. And it's great being on the right side of the fight with you guys. We've enjoyed the partnership and look forward to not just continuing it, but expanding it. But so we've talked a lot about the ecosystem. A part of the ecosystem are insurance companies. You guys aren't an insurance company. We're not an insurance company. We're talking about navigation. So it just reminds me of a story I heard that a typical insurance company the head of sales is in the driver's seat, foot on the gas. Head of underwriting is riding shotgun, hand on the steering wheel, trying to control the car. And the actuary is in the back seat, staring in the rear view mirror, giving directions. Um, so I like that. That's the insurance industry, <laughs> and it's why, and it's why we're, it's why we need to be on the right side of the fight. Thanks for listening to today's episode of 8020 with Pareto Health. We love hearing from you. If you have a question or an episode suggestion, please drop us an email at 8020 at com. That's 8020 at com. Dive deeper into 8020 by visiting us at paretohealth.com slash podcast. Lastly, make sure you follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify so you don't miss an episode.